Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. Thanks for connecting with us. To discover more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz. May this message be an encouragement to you. Um, I'm starting a new series this evening, um, and we've entitled it The God You Should Know. Um, It's a series in which I want to begin to look at some of the attributes of God. And uh, an attribute is defined as a quality of feature regarded as characteristic or an inherent part of something or someone. So what we're doing is we're really sort of trying to unpack what kind of person we're dealing with when we come to the scriptures. What kind of God are we talking about? The inherent uh, characteristics or qualities. Just a, a little bit of a warning. It, uh, we, by virtue of you know what we're talking about, some of it could be quite taxing at times, uh, particularly if you're a new believer. So um, if you need some instruction, ask somebody afterwards. Or at the very, you know, if it's if it's way over your head and you're finding it, oh man, this is really. Tr-. See if you can take one thought or maybe even one question. Uh, I want to begin by acknowledging and confessing the immensity of the task that lies before it and my complete inadequacy in terms of tackling it. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12, Paul, the apostle is talking about looking into spiritual matters, and he said, we see through a glass darkly. J.B. Phillips says, we look at puzzling reflections in the mirror, and all we know is a little fraction Eugene Peterson in the message says we're squinting in a fog and we're peering through the mist. We see faint reflections of riddles and mysteries is how the Passion Translation has it. This is a a subject that's so vast that our thoughts get lost in its immensity and so deep that our pride and presumptions are really drowned in its infinity. I'm out of my depth and I'm delving into a subject that's way above my pay grade. But I'm in good company. Uh, Rudolf Otto commented, a God comprehended is no God. So we recognize we're dealing with the incomprehensible. Clark Pinnock says, feeling our way toward truth is the nature of theological work, even with the help of scripture, tradition, and community. We are fallible, historically situated creatures, and our best thinking falls short of the ideal. And my favorite quote along these lines is Frederick Buechner, and he says, theology is the study of God and his ways. For all we know, dung beetles might study us in our ways and call it humanology. If so, we would probably be more touched and amused than irritated. One can only hope hope that God feels likewise. So we're dealing with some difficult issues, but um, we're going to have a go. Theology not done with a limp is not Christian theology. Now you might be thinking, well, Don, if it's that difficult, why bother? Well, um, what can be known about God is actually crucial for us. I don't know whether you remember Chris talking a couple of weeks ago saying, uh, and quoting A.W. Tozer, what you believe about God actually is the most important thing about you. Now, our opinions don't change who God is, but they certainly shape and change who we are. So it's fitting that we should try and think as well as we can about the God that we are dealing with and the kind of person that we're dealing with. So with that as a kind of a preamble and also as a disclaimer, I want to start limping toward and looking at some of the things that the scripture does say about God, some of the things that we can know about him. And I want to begin by talking about his sovereignty. Now, sovereignty is a concept that refers to uh, his dominant power and his supreme authority. 
So to say God is sovereign is to say that he rules over all things. And what I want to do is read you a selection of scriptures. There's quite a few involved. I could honestly fill the rest of the time just reading these scriptures, but listen to the ones that I've chosen. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 14. Indeed, heaven and the highest heavens belong to the Lord your God, also the earth with all that is in it. 1 Chronicles 29.11 Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for everything in the heavens and the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head above all. 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 6 O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? And do you not rule over all the kingdoms of the nations? In your hand are strength and might and there is no one that can oppose you. Psalm 135, verse 6, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in the heavens and on the earth, in the seas and all depths. Isaiah 40, 22 and 23, It is he who sits upon the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants are as grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens as a curtain and spreads them out as a tent to dwell in. He brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth meaningless. God's sovereignty is one of the main themes of the book of Daniel, and throughout the book of Daniel, there's this phrase repeated, the most high rules over the kingdoms of men and gives it to whomever, so, uh, to whomever he wills. Matthew 28, 18, Jesus said, all authority on heaven has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. And Revelation 4, 8, holy, 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 Lord God almighty. The Greek there, by the way, is, it could, could easily be translated all sovereign. That's just a selection of the scriptures that we have that talk about his sovereignty. And one is tempted to say, Case closed, problem solved, QED, let's move to another um, attribute. But it's, but it's not quite that simple. All Orthodox Christians affirm God's sovereignty. All agree that he alone exercises dominion. However, there is a massive debate among scholars as to what that sovereignty looks like and how it's outworked. How does he exercise his sovereignty? What kind of world did God in his sovereignty choose to create? Now, you might be tempted to think, oh, <clears throat> Don, there's, there's just more arcane mumbo-jumbo theological stuff that nobody but geeks like you are interested in, you know? Kind of how many angels can dance on a pinhead material? Really, Don? Who cares? Well, quite frankly, you should. It, this, this issue of God's sovereignty comes down to where the rubber meets the road for us Christians when tragedy strikes. When we're facing really difficult situations, we consistently ask God's sovereignty kinds of questions. For example, uh, um, a, a, dr a driver driving drunk hits a little girl and kills her. A Christian friend of the girl's parents tries to comfort them by reassuring them that God is in control, that he planned this, that somehow this will work in his eternal purposes for good. Now, the mother is greatly comforted by these words, but the father becomes enraged. If God is behind my daughter's untimely death, how can he be called good? What God, what good God, would purposefully snuff out the life of a little child and leave us in this nightmare? 
Another friend comes along and he agrees with the father and he says, listen, God was not responsible for this. The person responsible is the drunk driver. Now God is saddened by what's transpired and he wants to comfort you and perhaps out of the tragedy he might be able to bring something good though he didn't cause it. Now, which friend is right? Does God control all things meticulously? In which case, how is he not to blame for that situation? If God wasn't responsible and didn't control the events, how can you avoid the conclusion that his power is limited? That, how does that stack up with the scripture that says he's omnipotent and he's all-powerful? So these kinds of questions really become pastoral issues and they come up again and again when you and I encounter tragedy. When a person loses a child or a loved one, when you lose a marriage or your health, when you lose your livelihood, when you ask, where was God when and why would God allow this and why didn't he stop it? You are dealing with God sovereignty questions. It's where rubber meets road for most of us when difficult times come. And if you don't have some coherent, cogent answers for this issue, when tragedy strikes, you could so easily, like so many, uh, end up walking away from your faith, confused and angry. So much for God being loving and good and kind. So, key question, what does sovereignty really look like? Now, I know many of you will have heard, at least have heard of the term Reformed Theology. The Reformed family or community of churches is one of the largest Christian denominations. Actually, it's the third largest after Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox. And approximately 80 million people find themselves in a Reformed camp. Uh, and uh, it's, it's a theology that's very widespread among Protestants. Um, a recent survey showed that uh, nearly a third of Pentecostal pastors would consider themselves reformed in their theology. Crucial names, names like Augustine, John Calvin, the American revivalist uh, Jonathan Edwards, the great renowned English preacher Charles Spurgeon, and more recently scholars like R.C. Sproul, D.A. Carson, John Piper, Tim Keller, John MacArthur, Wayne Grudem, Mark Driscoll, um, a, a plethora of names who find themselves in this reformed camp. So we're not talking about some funny off-in-the-corner cult when we're talking reformed theology. Reformed theology, I, I mention all that because reformed theology has very clear ideas on God's sovereignty. It's sometimes called Calvinism after John Calvin, the great reformer, but but truth is the ideas behind reformed theology actually go further back in time. Probably Augustine is more rightly the origin of, of reformed theology rather than Calvin. The concept of God's sovereignty is expressed very clearly in a reformed document that we call the Westminster Confession, and it states, God from all eternity did freely and unchangingly ordain whatever comes to pass. So the idea is God ordains and controls everything that is, has happened, that does happen, and that will happen. That's God's sovereignty from a reformed perspective. Let me quote some of the aforementioned authors. Augustine, nothing happens unless the omnipotent wills it to happen. John Calvin, all events are governed by God's secret plan. Charles Spurgeon, every dust particle is keeping its position and moving through the air by God's appointment. John Piper, he is sovereign over the whole earth and everything that happens in it. R.C. Sproul, 
If there is one single molecule in the universe running around loose, totally free of God's sovereignty, then we have no guarantee that a single promise of God will ever be fulfilled. Maybe that one molecule will be the thing that prevents Christ from returning. I think you get the idea. Either God controls everything or, or nothing. It's, it's an all or nothing proposition. God is the all determining reality. Every single thing, macro and micro, has been ordained by God. There is nothing that God does not directly or indirectly cause and control. God gets exactly what God wants in every minute detail. That's what it means to be God and that's what it means to be sovereign in reformed thinking. Sometimes I hear people talking about God's blueprint for our lives. It apparently is that God has a blueprint for our lives and for history, and in this view of God's sovereignty, he's working it out in exact detail. This idea is widespread. You find it in many of the great hymns that we sing, and oftentimes you hear it when people are talking to somebody who's gone through tragedy and they trot out the Christian cliches like, well, you know, God has his reasons. There's a purpose in everything. All things work together for good. His ways are not our ways. God gives and God takes away. The problem is some of that is scripture. Now, I want to affirm God is sovereign. I'm not questioning or challenging that. I do want to suggest to you, though, and make you aware of the fact that the reformed view of God's sovereignty is not the only view of God's sovereignty, and in my humble opinion, uh, it's not the most satisfying either. Now, clearly, reformed theology and its view of God's sovereignty is not easily dismissed. It has much uh, backing in Scripture and in tradition to recommend it, or it would not be embraced by so many good and godly scholars. However, it does have some significant difficulties associated with it, difficulties that I at least find absolutely insurmountable. All right? And I want to talk to you a little bit about those difficulties. The first one, not the least of them, is the issue of free will in the creatures that God has created. If every event has been preordained in the secret councils of God before the foundation of the world, then they must happen exactly as planned because of those degrees and those prior conditions. That makes the idea of free will in the creatures that God has created completely illusory. Now, Reformed scholars would say, and your point is? Because they totally acknowledge that. They would say, um, and, and Augustine and Calvin both categorically denied free will in human creatures. Um, hum, Reformed theology does embrace, what, 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 in varying degrees, what we call determinism. So D.A. Carson suggests that the concept of free will negates God's sovereignty. You can't have free will and God's sovereignty. He says, if God is absolutely sovereign, in what sense can we meaningly speak of human choice, of human will? Must God be reduced to accommodate the freedom of human choice? And it's a rhetorical question. The answer is no. Now, a lot of scholars say, oh, Don, you're creating a bit of a straw man here. This is extreme Calvinism that you're talking about. We, we're Calvin, we, we, we're reformed, but we're much softer than that. I would want to say it's not extreme Calvinism that I'm talking about. It's consistent. It's consistent, logically consistent Calvinism. The, the softer version is you can actually have determinism and free will. They are 
compatible. And they are compatible because they affirm as long as people are doing what they want, then they are free. But the stinger in that is God unilaterally determines your inclinations so that what you want is what he has ordained for you. Now, I don't know about you, but that doesn't sit comfortably with me. To say I choose freely and then to admit God has preordained my inclinations with regard to that choice is nonsensical to me. That's like talking about a married bachelor or a square circle. It's verbal legitimate, it's verbal sleight of hand. There's not a human court in the world that would convict a man for a crime which he had been pre-programmed by an outside force to commit. It's, it's axiomatic. It goes without saying that one has to have control over one's own actions if one is going to be held morally accountable. Ultimate responsibility and guilt lies with ultimate cause. And if the ultimate cause of my actions is outside of me, how can I possibly be held morally accountable for them? I believe the scripture teaches that we have libertarian free will and that we are genuinely free to choose between competing alternatives. Now, I'm not suggesting that there aren't forces that impinge upon us. We all know about nature and nurture and how they shape us, but I do believe that we still have the freedom to exercise our choices and that no outside force has absolute sway. And I believe we know that intuitively. I think that we know that intuitively and it serves the ground for our everyday thoughts about right and wrong, about guilt and innocence, about justice and injustice. We know it consciously or unconsciously. I did philosophy at uh, university and I remember my professor standing up before the class and holding a pencil up and saying, you think that I have free will to either hold this pencil uh, as I'm holding it or drop it. But he said, you're wrong. He said, that choice has actually been predetermined by everything that's gone to make me up. And he was trying to tell us that, uh, that determinism is the way the world is. And if rightfully embraced, um, it would affect our justice system. That criminals could not be held responsible for crimes they committed since they had no more control over their actions than they did over their eye colour or their skin colour. I, I remember saying, um, I hope he felt the same about our exam results. I had the horrible feeling that determinism would end where my laziness began. There's no way that he could fail me. It wouldn't be my fault. I'd like to suggest to you that the scripture presents us with a sovereign God whose goal in creation has to do with his desire to acquire a people who can freely and willingly participate in and reflect the overflowing love of the divine triune community. He wants to draw us into a love relationship that has existed from all eternity between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I think the scripture presents love as his primary driving force. Question. What must creatures be like if they are capable of participating in that divine love? And the first thing I'd want to say is that they must be free. The first condition of love is that it's freely chosen. Love cannot be coerced, preordained, or pre-programmed. Love is only meaningful if it is freely chosen, and if it isn't freely given, it ceases to be love. C.S. Lewis says God created all things which had free will because free will is the only thing that makes love or goodness or joy worth having. 
Looking for free will in the Bible is like looking for gravity. It's assumed everywhere and it holds everything together. Genesis starts with you may freely eat from any tree in the garden and it ends with you may freely drink from the waters of life. And in between those two bookends, we have frequent exhortations to choose and to choose well. Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28, if you obey, these things will happen. If you disobey, these things will happen. Be wise in the choices that you make. Joshua stands before Israel and says, choose you this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Elijah stands before Israel and says, how long are you going to hold between two opinions? Make up your mind. Either it's Baal or it's Jehovah. And the Bible is filled with exhortations and challenges to make choices. But if we don't have free will, those exhortations and challenges are a sham. If God has decided in the secret councils of eternity before the foundations of the world how you will choose, then I'm sorry, you're not free to choose. You're like the Stepford Wives, if you've seen the movie. Reformed scholars like Carson think that human free will lessens God's absolute rule and therefore must be rejected. The claim is God is placed in a position of virtual servitude to his, cre to his creatures. But seriously, folks, I don't think you have to conclude that God is less sovereign in a world where he has chosen to give his creatures freedom. I don't think that sovereignty is meticulous control and less control is not the same as less sovereignty. I don't believe that the Bible teaches that God is omnicausal, that he causes everything. I think the Bible presents him as omniresourceful. He's in charge, but he's not in control. Or rather, should I say, he's in charge, but he's not controlling. I don't think scripture teaches that God is omni-controlling regarding the behavior of the free agents that he has created. I do believe that his general will for history cannot fail, but his particular will for people can and often does. He wants all people to be saved, the scripture says. Question, will all people be saved? Well, the answer clearly is no, unless you're a universalist. Look at Luke chapter 7, verse 30. Jesus is dealing with the Pharisees and it says, the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the counsel of God against themselves by not being baptized of John. The counsel of God for the Pharisees and the people of Israel at that time was that they'd, they'd respond to John's message. But it says, they rejected the counsel of God concerning themselves. The will of God was not secretly underneath that they would reject because before all the counsels of eternity, God had determined that they would reject. He says, choice, and they chose to reject. What do you say to a reformed scholar who says everything is at risk if anything is at risk? Remember uh, uh, Sproul saying, if there's just one molecule running around free of God's sovereignty, we're all in big trouble. Friends, I don't think you have to have meticulous control in order to be in charge of everything. Let, let me try and illustrate. In the field of quantum physics, scientists cannot predict where individual particles will be and how they will behave at any particular given time. But the behavior of a large group of particles is very, very predictable. In the field of sociology or psychology, the behavior of large groups of people is statistically predictable even though the behavior of individual people within that, um, within that group is not. 
For those of you who've done university, I'm, I'm sure you've heard of the bell curve, if we could put it up. And it doesn't really matter whether you're measuring uh, weight, height, um, IQ, the bell curve is a fairly predictable response. You get some people at the very low end, you get some people at the very high end, and the majority of us are in the middle. I don't know where your IQ is. It might be very high, I hope it's not very low. For most of us, I suspect it's somewhere in the middle. I can't predict it for you, but I can predict the bell curve. It will be like that for a large group of people. Could it not be possible that God, in the same way, gives you the freedom to be wherever you are on the bell curve, but he will get his purposes in all of history exactly as, as he wants? I believe divine sovereignty and creation should be understood not in terms of absolute control, but in terms of a God who gives power and shares power with his created beings for the sake of relationships that have integrity. For the sake of genuine relationships, God freely chooses not to be the only one with power in the world, but he entrusts his creatures with the power of choice. He does not micromanage the work of his human creatures. He, has, he is a power-sharing God for the sake of genuine relationships. Now, I'm not trying to exalt human freedom above or at the expense of divine sovereignty. I am seeking to affirm God's freedom to create whatever kind of world he desires. God is sovereign over a sovereignty. And he's sovereignly chosen to create a world in which people have the freedom to choose. This is a major issue for me. It's a major stumbling block in terms of um, embracing a reformed view of God's sovereignty. A second hurdle related to and intertwined with it is the blueprint view is really hard-pressed to explain sin and evil in a way that's morally plausible. If a good God preordains everything that happens, why is there so much sin and evil in the world and how is he not responsible for it? Surely ultimate responsibility resides with ultimate cause. Now reformed theology claims that in God's sovereignty he has ordained sin and evil in order for there to be a fully orbed manifestation of his glory. So Jonathan Edwards says God ordains evil so he can display his holiness in judging it and his grace in forgiving it. Another uh, reformed scholar says the fall of Adam and Eve was ordained in the secret counsels of God. And another, all things, unbelief and sin included, proceed from God's eternal decree. Man is still to blame for his sin and he's guilty and it's his fault and not God's. You know what? The logic of that should spin your head. The same author freely, pun intended, admits that that position is illogical, nonsensical and contradictory. But he takes refuge by appealing to mystery. He says, the secret matters belong to the Lord and we should leave it there. By the way, that appeal to mystery is a common ploy when faced with questions of logic. John Piper says, I'm willing to let the paradox stand even if I can't explain it. And John MacArthur says, I don't know how God resolves it, but I'm content to leave it with him. Listen, I accept at times revelation of Scripture goes way beyond reason, but it doesn't go against reason. And we do gladly accept mystery and paradox, but not logical conclusions that are devoid of meaning. Some Reformed scholars try to soften that 
Oh, Don, you're talking about extreme Calvinism. No, I'm not. I'm talking about consistent Calvinism. They try and soften it by saying, well, God doesn't ordain the evil. He simply removes the constraints so people can do it. Logically, the result is the same. It's the same preordained purpose. To suggest, as Reformed scholars must, that God ordained and allows horrific evil for, the, for some higher reason seems to me to impugn and challenge God's character. Fyodor Dostoevsky, the famous Russian novelist who wrote the wonderful novel The Brothers Karamazov, has one of the brothers, Ivan, abandoning his belief in God on these moral grounds. And he cries bitterly, I renounce the higher harmony altogether. It's not worth the tears of one tortured child who prayed with unexpiated tears to dear kind God. And he's arguing, like many before and since, that the suffering of one innocent child for some higher purpose is intrinsically immoral. And I would say I think Ivan's rage is justified, but his rejection of God is unnecessary. Standing before a grieving parent, no one with a sensitive bone in their body would attempt to soothe their anguish by asserting that their child had died as a result of God's eternal, inscrutable, righteous counsels and that the death mysteriously had served God's purposes in history uh, and, and, and it was needed to display his fully orbed glory. I, I choke on that. I do think that scripture teaches God's ultimate authority over the world and that he's sovereign, but, he's, but it also teaches that he's created agents who can and do exercise free will. And in the exercising of that free will, sometimes they resist his will, create evil and chaos in doing so. And one of the central motives that runs throughout scripture depicts God warring against angelic and human opposition who are in some measure able to thwart his will. Scripture describes a world caught up in a spiritual war between God and these rebellious agents. And suffering and evil takes on a different meaning when you view them against the backdrop of a cosmic war. Now we can and do look to God for comfort in the midst of suffering and we believe that he can even bring good out of evil. But I don't think we have to look to God's purpose for the explanation of why that specific evil took place. God's will is not at present uniformly being carried out in the world. Walter Wink says this, if we do not take into account the powers, the dark demonic powers, we will end up blaming God for the evil committed by the powers. It's a brilliant statement. A theme that undergirded Jesus' ministry was his assumption that creation had been seized by cosmic forces and he had come to battle these forces and to rescue it. And every exorcism and every healing, the two activities that most characterizes ministry, mark an advance of the kingdom of God over and against the kingdom of Satan and darkness, the one that Jesus called the prince of this world. It is the assumption of that cosmic conflict that led Jesus to teach us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If Reformed theology and their view of God's sovereignty is correct, then God's will is already being done in microscopic and meticulous detail. I want to come back and deal with a couple more issues next week, God willing. In conclusion, because God has chosen to create a cosmos populated with free agents, I would suggest that his sovereignty is established as much by his wisdom as it is by his power.
He's given his creatures the power to say no to him so that they also may have the power to say yes to him. These creatures, by virtue of their freedom, are able to resist and thwart his will to some extent. Nevertheless, God is able wisely to accomplish his purpose in spite of and sometimes by means of their rebellion. I think he's like a brilliant chess master. By virtue of his infinitely superior wisdom, he's assured of victory. He doesn't preordain his opponent's moves. They are free to make whatever moves they're capable of, but he wins the game not by meticulously controlling it, but by being the infinitely wise one that he is. This idea of God's sovereignty it, it makes a considerable difference. There's nothing less than the character of God at stake. Whether one sees God who eternally willed the history of sin and death as a necessary means of displaying his fully orbed glory, or whether one says God has willed good for his creatures from eternity and he will bring it to pass despite their rebellion and by so ordering all things toward his goodness that even the evil which he doesn't cause becomes the occasion for the operation of his grace. God's character is at stake. God's sovereignty is a really important attribute. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz.